0: Well, good morning. Welcome to uh, Christ Community Leawood Campus. Um, I'm Tom Nelson, and I'm wearing blue today. You notice that? If you're from Kansas City, you know you have to be excited about that. So, pretty fun, and if you're not a baseball fan, you need to be this week, right? First service, I slipped to say that they were going to win the World Series. I'm not a prophet, so uh, it was some some <laughs> slip. So, I'm sorry if... Uh, Someone asked me as they left, are you a prophet? I said, no, I won't say that, but they did win the American League Championship. I got that one right, so I'm just thinking ahead, you know? But I don't know if you picked up recently the uh, CNN interview. Um, It was a very powerful interview of a 29-year-old lady, a beautiful young lady. Uh, I think I have a picture over here, Brittany Menard. Uh, Her story has gone all across the globe, and Brittany discovered in April she has a Uh, terminal brain tumor, a cancer that is very aggressive. It's a moving story. She's just been married a year. Can you imagine that? And um, Brittany has moved to Oregon uh, because in the state of Oregon, uh, it's uh, legal in that state for physician-assisted suicide. And she doesn't want her family, quote, to uh, face the nightmare with her and to see her go to hospice care and so forth. And as you follow her story, Brittany says she wants to take things into her own hands, and she describes what she is choosing as death with dignity. Brittany says she'll die in her own way, in her own terms, and she puts it this way, very heartfelt. I've had the medication for weeks now. I do not want to die, but I am dying. And I want to die in my own terms. I plan to celebrate my husband's birthday on October 26th with him and our family, and I will look to pass soon after. I want to die upstairs in my bedroom with my husband, my mom, my stepmom, my best friends by my side, and pass peacefully. If you follow her story, regardless of the ethical issues, serious ethical issues this raises, I'm really struck by the gut-wrenching reality this precious young woman faces in the prime of her life with all our hopes and dreams. See, death is a subject we all think about. Sometimes we think about it more than we admit. But transparently, we seldom talk a lot about it, at least in any depth. The facing death and the death of the loved ones that we care so much about is an inescapable reality for all human existence, for you and me. I learned this as a young boy at the age of 10. I remember it like it was yesterday with crystal clarity. I came face to face with death. I remember the strange smells, the soft sobs, the stinging tears of the funeral home visitation room where my dad's body lied. And I remember as a young boy staring into the casket and three things. Rip me up. One, there were questions I asked. There was a deep hurt I felt as never before. And there was hope I desperately needed. I want to suggest that all of us, when we face the death of loved ones, and the longer we live, the more we face it, let alone our own mortality, we inevitably raise these three realities in our heart, often in silent desperation. Inevitably, whether it's our own mortality or someone we love, we ask questions, deep questions that are evasive to our grasp as human creatures, and we feel a deep hurt, and we have a hope for great, or we have a need for great hope. I would suggest to you that we all grasp for a reason, for meaning, for traction, in tractionless air. And all of us long for a reason to hope. In our text this morning, as we go through the Gospel of John, let's not forget that John now is an elderly man. He is on the island of Patmos. He has seen many of his friends die through martyrdom. And he is a very elderly man with shaky hands. He pens this Gospel a Gospel that paints a picture of hope in Jesus and faith in Jesus but let's not forget his own existential experience as we look at this story. Because John is facing death soon. It's just a matter of time. And he looks back at a story, a first-hand, unforgettable moment that not only affirms who Jesus is and helps us address the question of death and how we deal with it, but John is bringing comfort to his own heart as he faces it. And what I think is pretty amazing about the Gospel of John is John goes to the heart of the matter. His narrative in this chapter is encoded in Scripture around three existential longings. This is how it develops. And that is the questions we all ask in death, the deep hurt we feel, and the hope we long for. So our story this morning, I'd like us to follow that progression because this is where the text takes us. Our story begins in the first part of the chapter. John, as a good storyteller, sets the stage. He gives us the three main characters. At least the spotlight is on them. Initially, they're three members of a family, two sisters and a brother, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He also tells us that Lazarus is very ill, and the language used by John is he's in serious trouble. This is like intensive care. But that's not all that he tells us. Don't miss that he says that Mary and Martha sent an urgent message, most likely via a courier. Jesus is a couple days away east of Jordan, and Lazarus and Mary and Martha live in Bethany, which is in the eastern outskirts of Jerusalem. You can see Jerusalem from there as it looks out over the Mount of Olives. It's a gorgeous picture. So what happens in the story as John lays the bedrock story is we find in verse 6 something that is culturally shocking. And John is very specific that Jesus is east of the Jordan River. He hears that Lazarus is very ill. The message comes to him. And the text says, Jesus stays two more days where he is. Now, when one of your best friends, someone you deeply love, is so ill, you go to their bedside. Personally, that's true. Culturally, that's true. So this is a shocking thing that Jesus does. There's a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples as the story unfolds. The conversation is about the danger of going back to Judea, which is near Jerusalem. After two days, Jesus says, guys, we got to go back. They've just come from there, and the heat is rising. The opposition against Jesus is rising, and the threat of being stoned and and killed, for Jesus is a threat to the religious aristocracy. So, the disciples are protesting Jesus going back, and Jesus sort of Ushers them into the story that, hey, Lazarus. Lazarus is really sick. Lazarus is sleeping. And so there's a (laughs) hey, Jesus, if Lazarus sleep, let him sleep longer he'll get better. And Jesus says, no, Lazarus is dead. Now, John wants us to know throughout the book that Messiah Jesus is not only the one who holds all the atoms of the universe together, he knows everything. He knows the heart of everybody, the thoughts, right? Here's a picture of Jesus' omniscience. Jesus is two days away, and he knows that Lazarus has died. Keep that in mind. So off the disciples go with Jesus. They must have been sweating bullets as they made their way back to hostile territory, Bethany in the outskirts of Jerusalem. And John tells us, again, very specifically, I want you to see this in the story and hear it, that Lazarus is dead. <laughs> I mean, Lazarus is very dead dead. And he does it by repeating twice in the story, four days dead. That's dead. That's dead. This is not a near-death experience. This is Lazarus dead. Four days. The literary lens shifts now to Mary and Martha and the grief. It's uh, quite a story, actually, before Jesus gets there. We have this sense, both in verse 21 and verse 32, is that Mary and Martha, even though they have different personalities, Mary stays at home and Martha goes to meet Jesus when when she hears He's coming. They both ask the very same question. In the original language, it is verbatim. And the question is, Lord, which is a wonderful irony. It's dripping with irony. He's, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Do you see that? Both in verse 21 and 32. So Mary and Martha, like all of us, when we face the loss of a loved one, we have burning questions that rip us up. We all ask questions. And Mary and Martha are asking some big questions. They're asking like you and I would. Why, God? Why now? Why did you let this happen? Why now, God, when our children were young, when they needed a dad or a mom? Why, God, when there was so much my loved one had to do yet in life? Why now, when our children need a grandma or grandpa, where were you, God, when I pleaded with you to save my friend, my husband, my child? See this heart-wrenching question is the question Mary and Martha are asking Jesus. They're simply saying, where were you, Jesus? Why weren't you here when Lazarus was so ill and Martha? She somehow pulls out a sliver of hope in her grief. She says, Jesus, you could have done something about it. Mary and Martha are feeling one of the greatest pains of the human heart. They feel absolutely abandoned by Jesus. And Jesus' response to Martha, sort of in a broad theological way, you know our faith tradition as Jewish people? One day, it will rise again, way down yonder. That's the idea. Maybe he didn't say yonder. don't know. But what Jesus says next, we must not miss. It's key to the story. Jesus turns to Martha from her thoughts about when of the resurrection to the who of the resurrection. So in verse 25, Jesus says to Martha this amazing statement, I am the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus is saying to Martha in her intense grief grief and loss, you're asking the wrong question, Martha. The question is not why God, but rather can God. Not why God, you would allow this to happen, God, but rather can God reach down in the clutches of the stink of death and pull out beautiful life. J.R.R. Tolkien has, I think, this passage in mind in Lord of the Rings, if you're a fan, and there's a great line with Sam. Sam says, can everything sad come untrue? This is where John has us, the deepest questions of our heart. When we face death, the death of of loved ones, our own mortality, we inevitably ask these questions where satisfying answers in our finite mind cannot reach. There are no answers for this, humanly. Yet we find in the conversation that Jesus has with Mary and Martha a watershed truth to, to hold on to, and that is this. The true hope comes not from having the answers, but from knowing a person. You and I can face death, the death of our loved ones, even when we don't have all the answers. But when we know the one who is the resurrection and the life, the one who is life itself, the creator and sustainer of all things. The Apostle Paul highlights this. In the book of Colossians, he will highlight the very essence of God. That Jesus, in him, all things are created through him and for him and by him, and he sustains all things together. This Jesus who created the universe. And John will say later on in John 14, Jesus' words to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Often, I think, we think about the way and the truth, but we don't grasp the crescendo of that phrase. Jesus says, I am the life. In the original text, it is emphatic, emphatic, emphatic. It is not a, a, a. It's the, the, the. He's the life. Martha and Mary need to grasp this. And you and I do too. This is Jesus who will never forsake us. This is Jesus who will never abandon us. He is the good shepherd who will walk through the valley of the shadow of death with you and me and with those we love who know him let's not forget something jesus is two days away from outside of jerusalem jesus knows that lazarus is ill he knows that lazarus has died jesus very word the word that spoke the universe into existence did not need to be physically present to heal lazarus or to raise him from the dead we know this even from the gospel writers luke chapter 7 jesus raises the centurion's servant from the dead by his word when he's a long ways away. He could have raised Lazarus without him ever coming to Bethany. John knows this, and the reader knows this. But Jesus does something, and here we find a paradox. Jesus, who is absent, who does not need to be present, is now present, When he comes to Bethany. He comes to Mary and Martha in their deep grief and loss. He incarnationally comes to them. He is with them in their grief and loss. Jesus does not spare us from suffering or facing death, friends. But Jesus is right there with us even in the valley of the shadow of death, even in the ambush of grief and suffering. Jesus doesn't answer the why questions, but he answers a more important question. Will you be with me? Yes, I will never abandon you. I am with you. What we see in the next part of this story as it unfolds is Jesus is not only with us in death, Jesus feels deeply the hurt and suffering we feel in death itself. We feel this hurt and intensity. In verses 33 to 38. Let me read that as we enter this story again. When Jesus saw her, Mary, that's Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Let's remember that John is right here. The Writer John ushers us into the full ambush of emotion. The microburst of tears that were a part of his journey. Everyone is weeping, and we feel it. Every heart around that tomb is broken and ripped in two, including Jesus' heart. Jesus weeps in deep grief. But we must not miss that John gives us another insight about Jesus. John pulls from classical Greek language and repeats an unusual word twice in the story, describing Jesus' emotion. In verse 33 and then verse 38, you'll notice the English translates it deeply moved. Not only Jesus wept, 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 You see weep, 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 tears, tears, tears. And then it says Jesus was deeply moved twice. The word captures not only intense sorrow, but it, in, it captures intense anger, visceral anger. So what is John saying in the story? Interpreters have wrestled what this means. Some have thought that primarily it's Jesus angry at the lack of faith. And that could be, but I think there's something more going on here. My sense is that Jesus, the creator of all who made the good earth and said it's very good, now comes face to face in an incarnational way at the hideous disfiguring of His creation. And he comes face to face with the corruption, the vandalism, the corruption of, of his own beautiful creation and his good friend, Lazarus. It's hard to imagine how the creator of the universe in all his holiness and goodness could confront the hideous evil of death face to face like that and what he must have felt. I think I get a glimpse of that. I think maybe you have. when you stand by the graveside of a loved one. The casket is sitting there. A few final words are spoken. The loved ones sit on the front row. And they just stare. If you've been there, you know what that's like. As the loved one, their body is getting ready to be lowered in the cold unfeeling earth and we all cry out in those moments this is just not right this is not how it was designed to be see grief hurts it hurts horribly it hurts badly and brutally and it lingers for a long time. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant Oxford professor and Christian, longtime atheist, who came to faith, wrote one of the most powerful books called The Problem of Pain and The Problem of Evil in the World as a Christian. But it's the book he wrote after that that perhaps is most compelling after his precious wife Joy died of cancer. It's a book entitled A Grief Observed. And if you've not read it, I commend it to you. Lewis describes his feelings of anger at God, his bewilderment, his feeling of despair, and he describes the loss of his precious wife, Joy, as an amputation. He describes his wife's absence and what it's like to be left behind like the sky that is spread over everything. Lewis writes these words, is anything more certain than in all those vast times and spaces? If I were allowed to search them, I should nowhere find her face, her voice, or touch. Lewis faces the dilemma of resolution in his book later on. He writes, two widely different convictions press more and more on my mind. One is that eternal vet is even more inexorable and the possible operations even more painful than our severest imaginings can forebode. But the other, that all shall be well and all the manner of things shall be well. This is where John has us in the story. right at the tomb. And John wants us to tell, to know that for those who trust Jesus, the resurrection life, all shall be well one day. And he tells us in this story that Jesus doesn't just give us empty words or words that may feel empty. He's with us in our hurt and our pain. Jesus Addresses the hurt of grief, and He's there with us. Whatever you're going through, Jesus can empathize with you. There's not one thing that has come in your life in the past today or tomorrow that takes Jesus by surprise, and Jesus can carry you when you feel you can't go on. I was reading recently the latest statistics about Les Misérables. It's truly amazing, this musical, and how it captures the human heart. But do you realize right now over 70 million people in 42 countries have seen this live? Nothing compares to that. Why? What is it about Victor Hugo's work? It captures the resonance of our heart. No song captures the cry of the human heart that faces loss, and particularly the pain of abandonment, better than Fantine's song or Fantine's song, I Dreamed a Dream. There are a few words that I think are so moving. And still I dreamed He'd come to me, that we would live the years together. But there are dreams that cannot be, and there are storms we cannot weather. In the cold clutches of grief and loss, you may be feeling that there are storms you cannot weather, but you can't do it. But what John is telling us is, yes, there are storms you can't weather, but there are no storms Jesus can't carry you through. You can be transparent in your grief with Jesus. He knows how you feel. John goes out of his way to let us know that Mary and Martha are not alone in their grief. Not only is Jesus with them, their faith community is with them. And I think this is a picture for the church. That Jesus created his church, his called out ones, to be a place of lament Place where brokenness of our lives and our world, that we can process this together. We can be a transparent people helping others grieve. We can be a people who listen. Jesus listens to the grieving heart. We can be a people, a local church congregation that wrestles with each other's questions, who bears one another's burdens. And this summer, particularly, or recently, we've had a lot on our Leewood campus. We've had a lot of grief. People have faced the loss of loved ones recently and in, a, in a high level a son, a brother, a husband, a father, a mom, a grandma, a grandfather. And as we move into the holiday season, the storms of grief often intensify. So, how can we be there for people? How can we be there for each other's grief? I want to suggest three things that I found absolutely essential to enter into one another's grief. First is this, and you might want to write these down and think about them be physically present. Be physically present. Don't just say, let me know if I can help you. Don't be intrusive, but take the initiative to drop them a note, maybe, to give them a call, to stop, to help do practical things for them like a meal offer to clean their house, run errands for them, mow their yard, whatever. Be physically present. Second, listen with your heart. There's a reason we don't know what to say in these moments because words don't capture it. Words betray us. So let's stop trying to say too much and let's start learning how to listen with our heart. The language of silence speaks so powerfully to others when they're ambushed with grief. So let's say less and listen more. And shedding tears with someone may be the greatest act of love you can do at that moment. Be physically present. Listen with your heart. And last, realize grief takes time. It takes a lot of time. Grace that we are called to live and we experience in Christ, grace always gives people One of the ways we can be a more caring family is to be in small groups together to help each other walk through this, like community groups, over the long haul. And if you faced a particular difficult loss recently, our family and care ministry has something called Grief Share. You might be reading about it. You can go to our website. Also, Pastor Warren leads that. And Pastor Warren, if you don't know who he is, he has a, always has a Hawaiian shirt on Sunday morning. But I encourage you to take advantage of that. See, when we face loss, there are inevitable questions we ask. There are deep hurts we feel. And what we need is hope. And this is where John takes us in the story as he finishes. Look at verses 39 through 44. Jesus said, take away the stone. (laughs) Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. That's dead, dead. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet with linen strips. just like a zombie. I can't help with it. And his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him or to them, unbind him and let him go. Can you imagine this moment? Jesus, the author of life, who said, let there be light, and there was light, now says, "Life," let there be life, and there was light. Just like that. <laughs> the one that Ezekiel told of, who would have a valley of dry bones, speaks the word, and they become alive. This wasn't a quiet whimper. This wasn't a passive suggestion. John emphasizes the word. If you translate this literally, and I think better, with all due respect to the editorial committee, Jesus shouted with a voice. This is an authoritative command. Can you imagine? I mean, put ourselves... <laughs> what it'd be like today? I mean, this would be late breaking news, Right? This is like the news when the Royals won the American League and soon to win the Royal Series, we hope. I mean, news travels fast. Imagine the hashtag, the living dead, that get your attention. What did this mean for Lazarus? Have you ever thought about this? John does not say a peep. Why? I want to know what Lazarus thought of this whole deal. John doesn't tell us. It's not about Lazarus. Lazarus is walking dead, man. I mean, he's going to die again. What's on John's mind is about Jesus. What did it mean for Jesus? And we know later on that Jesus, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus has a lot of press in the rest of John that Jesus signed his death warrant for the Jewish authorities. That was it. But John has something else up his literary sleeve, does he not? When we read the whole book, he wants us to believe that Jesus is the one who gives us life. (laughs) And so John highlights this for our benefit, for Martha's benefit, for the disciples. And isn't it interesting, Mary? Mary gets pressed in the next chapter. Mary is... Beside herself with grief. And in the next chapter, where do you find Mary? She is worshiping Jesus with hope and extravagant joy. Mary is surprised by joy when she realizes Jesus is the resurrection of life. Jesus gives us the hope we need. There are questions we ask, there are hurt we feel, but he gives us the hope we need. See, the Christian faith, we understand it, the good news of the gospel is that we can live the life we are designed to live increasingly, and we can die well. Death is not fun. We don't look forward to it. We need not fear it. We can face it with hopeful confidence. If you are younger here this morning, I just want to encourage you that life is short. The brevity of life is Real. And you may think you have many, many years left, but none of us know that. So this text calls us to live well now. Will you embrace the good news of the gospel? Will you become an apprentice of Jesus? Will you love each day as if it's last before your audience of one? And if you live well now, you will die well later, whenever that is. The key to dying well is living well and living all in for Jesus. If you're an older person, I don't know where we transition to that. (laughs) So you can just figure that one out, huh? You may be thinking more about death these days. It's pretty normal, isn't it? When you increasingly go to your friends and other people's memorial service, you start thinking more about it. I remember asking my mom, who's now with the Lord, as she got older, she crossed into the 80 realm. Said, Mom, what's hardest about this season of your life? And I thought she'd say, you know, I can't remember people's names, you know, or her physical ailments. She had a few of those, but this is what she said to me. She said, The hardest thing for me is losing my friends and the loneliness I feel. She would describe it like this I miss the phone calls that never come anymore, I miss the Scrabble games we don't play. And the conversations we used to have, there are no more. And the history we share. If you are older, I want to encourage you to live well now. To not turn inward. To cultivate new friendships. To make the most of every day. To serve Christ, His church. To make a contribution to the world. To give it all now. not coast. As someone who has the privilege of doing memorial services, I want you all to not only have a radiant life, but a radiant death. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For the true Christian who embraces Christ, trust in His finished work on the cross and His glorious resurrection, death is the ultimate win-win. What Jesus must have been thinking when he stood at the tomb of Lazarus, what do you think? We know he was angry, but his thoughts must have cascaded to his own imminent death, don't you think? And when he looked at that tomb, he must have seen his own tomb. And he must have seen himself not only going into that tomb, but walking out. And the stone moving at his majesty. He knew death would not have the final word. He would. As a follower of Jesus, Karen Tippetts is facing death too. I don't know her, but I was really moved by her response in her blog to Brittany Maynard. Karen has terminal cancer as well. And she pens some words in her blog to Brittany, and I want to share in closing just a few of them. Karen is a follower of Jesus. And she writes these words I too am dying, Brittany. I love you. I'm so sorry you are dying. I'm so sorry that we are both being asked to walk a road that, feely, that feels simply impossible to walk. So, dear heart, We simply disagree. Suffering is not the absence of goodness. Perhaps it's the place where truest beauty can be known. In choosing your own death, you are robbing those that love you with such tenderness. The opportunity of meeting you in your last moments and extending you love in your last breath. Brittany, knowing Jesus, knowing that he understands my hard goodbye, he walks with me in my dying. My heart longs for you to know this truth, this love, this forever living. So, Brittany, I pray my words reach you. I pray they reach the multitudes that are looking at your story and believing the lie that suffering is a mistake. That dying isn't to be braved, that choosing our death is the courageous story. Friends, Jesus makes possible a death not only with dignity, but a death with triumph and hope. It's not about taking things into our own hands. It's really about taking the hands, the nail-scarred hands, of the one who is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Father, we have traversed difficult terrain, intellectually, emotionally, for all of us, wherever our faith is, or unfaith, or wherever we are. Holy Spirit, speak into every heart the goodness of the gospel, that Jesus has come. He has died. He has risen and will come again. And that in him we have hope.